Hello, Missio. Today, your scripture reading is from Revelation 2, 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Thanks be to God. Welcome. Good morning. Welcome on this, what we've been calling Lilith Fair Sunday, where it's only chicks on stage. Uh, I realize that sort of dates me. Sometimes I've said that, and people are like, what? And I'm like, you know, Jewel, come on. Uh, but no, it's really good to be here. My name is Lydia. I'm one of the pastors. I'm the uh, pastor of kids and family, if we haven't gotten a chance to meet yet. Uh, but today we're going to continue studying our book of Revelation. Um, we're really only just getting started with this book. And so if you're one of those people who's really looking forward to sort of the juicy, weird, super apocalyptic bits, just stay tuned. We haven't gotten there yet. We've only gotten a little weird yet uh, at this point. So just keep, keep coming back. We'll get there. Uh, but for the past few weeks, we've been looking at the letters uh, that we find in the second chapter of the book of Revelation. And so to recap a, a bit, John, the author of the book of Revelation, is exiled on the island of Patmos. He's there because, he, as he said, he's been bearing witness to the testimony of Jesus, and so that he's uh, experiencing some persecution. And so while he's there, he receives a vision. And in that vision, Jesus tells him to write down what he sees and to send it in the form of a letter to these seven churches in Western Asia. And so these are messages from Jesus himself given via John the Revelator, as he is sometimes referred to. Now, it's kind of important to sort of set the stage here in terms of like what these churches were like and what they were experiencing at the time. So the members of these churches, you have to understand, they're existing as a very tiny religious minority under the Roman Empire. And so while they're finding that their faith is sort of butting up against the dominant culture around them and the dominant religion around them, which is centered around the emperor, uh, they're not experiencing the kind of widespread, sort of pervasive, state-sponsored persecution that was to come later. Um, we know for certain that that happened under other emperors, but that was more towards the middle of the third century, and that's not really what they're going through right at this point. So... At this point, Christians are kind of just viewed as, like, weirdos. Like, the people around them, their neighbors are like, okay, let me see if I get this straight. You're not Jews. And Jews, at this point, were given sort of special dispensation to not have to uh, participate in the civic religion. They were kind of given a special exemption in that way. So they're like, you're not Jews. You're Gentiles. And you don't worship any of our gods. And you also just worship one god, which, first of all, weird. Uh, 
And on top of that, you refuse to like make any sacrifices to the emperor or acknowledge the god of the city to whom we owe all of our prosperity and fame. Yeah, like that's not going to work real well here. Um, and so that would occasionally result in some persecution, but it was more sporadic. But of course, we know because John, our author, talks about being in exile, he's experiencing persecution. And as we read earlier, Antipas, who's mentioned in the letter we're looking at today, he died for the faith. And so we know that people did lose their lives for their faith, but it was more sporadic than that. And because we've, we've read that, Revelation was thought to be, for a very long time, set during that, that intense period of uh, persecution. But more recently, scholars for sort of all their scholarly reasons, has sort of moved away from that thinking. But we don't have to get into that. Scholars aside, when we sort of pay close attention to the text just as average readers, we can sort of see for ourselves that that's really not the portrait that we're getting anyway, right? Because what's implicit in these letters is that there's still choices to be made by the people on how they're going to live their everyday lives, right? So in the text today, John writes to them and he says, hey, you did great, you held fast to the name a long time ago, but I have some problems with how you're living now, and this is what's going to happen if you don't repent, and this is what's going to happen if you do. That's kind of the, the gist of the letter. So if the legal status of Christianity at the time had been sort of like banned, it would have read, it would have read a lot differently, right? The consequences would have been more certain. And we've talked about in the past couple of weeks sort of the, the genre of the book of Revelation is, is apocalypse. And one of the functions of an apocalypse is to sort of to unveil what's going on, to unmask, right? So what's going on behind the scenes and to sort of provoke people to action, to call, the, like, like, wake you up, right? But it, there's really no need to sort of reveal or unveil what's going on around you if you can look around yourself and see, like, oh, my house is on fire, like, you don't need anyone to tell you what's going on. You can see that for yourself. And so what we find in the situation of these churches is much subtler than that. So the church is on fire. In fact, the opposite seems to be happening. So the culture around them is sort of flourishing, and they're kind of being welcomed to participate in that, sort of. And John is sort of pulling back the curtain and showing them, hey, Something much more sinister is at play that you're not, you're not aware of. And so the point of John's letter is not to warn them about persecution, first and foremost. But he is warning them. But the threat that Jesus, or John via Jesus, however you want to look at it, uh, seems to be concerned with is more of an internal threat versus an external one. It's sort of like that classic horror movie trope, like the call is coming from inside the house, right? Kind of makes it scarier. And so what John and Jesus are most concerned with here is that the Christians in Pergamum are at risk, not of persecution, but of being seduced by the empire. They're at risk of losing their identity and being formed slowly, subtly, and almost imperceptibly by the imperial culture that they're around. And I think that this message can sort of be remixed for us today because we too, unless we stay vigilant, we're just as much at risk of being formed more by empire than the kingdom of God. Now, you may be thinking like, she keeps throwing around the word empire. And last time I checked, it's 2021. I've seen Hamilton. 
Last time we were in, under an empire, it was the British, and it was 1776. Great observation. <laughs> so empire can simply be viewed as any secular power that, is ex that expresses itself oppressively and demands our allegiance. Well, that's a lot of words. But you could put it even more simply, it's just human power disguised as a god. So rather than trying to sort of like decode Revelation, which is how a lot of people, Johnny mentioned this, how a lot of people have read Revelation, rather than trying to decode it and try to figure out like what sort of authoritarian regime are we referring to here? Is it Rome? Is it the Soviet Union? Is it the United States? The more important thing to realize is that empire has just been around. Past, future, but more importantly, present. Empire exists now. And it's evil because, and I'm going to throw this quote up here because this is kind of a loaded term, but, or a loaded quote, but it comes from Michael Gorman, who we as a staff have been reading in our uh, study and preparation for this series. This is how he puts it. He says that empire is evil because it makes seductive, blasphemous, and immoral claims, and it engages in practices that bring disorder, both vertically, meaning our relationship to God, humans to God, and horizontally, meaning our relationships with each other, human to human. It promises life, but it delivers death, both spiritual and physical. And so any cultural institution that engages in that, it fits the bill for empire. So whether that's ideological systems such as racism or nationalism or hedonism, consumerism, or even systems that sort of purport to promote human flourishing, right? Things that start out good. Uh, they can all be corrupted and co-opted by empire. So this includes even things like our own Western, American, or Christian values. They can be weaponized in the service of empire. So it's any system that competes for our allegiance or our worship and claims authority over and against the lordship of Christ. So... The threat facing the church wasn't Rome or any other go governing authority. That battle of empire, no matter what form it takes, that battle is always raging behind the scenes, as John is going to continue to tell us throughout the book of Revelation. But we know how the story ends for that. For the empire, it's going down. There's no question. But what does hang in the balance is the fate of those who are currently participating, cooperating with empire. So this is the collaborators. And so the warning that John issues to the church at Pergamum is not to Rome. Jesus says in verse 16, as we read earlier, that he is coming to make war with the sword of his mouth with not Rome, but the people within the church who are leading people astray. And so the question that Pergamum and the other churches, and frankly for us today, is how do we maintain our allegiance to Jesus Christ while simultaneously living in a culture that is wholeheartedly opposed to the kingdom of God. And not under a moment of intense persecution, but when things are kind of like, they're kind of going okay, when things are easy. Because if we're honest, like in many ways, it's actually harder to inhabit that sort of compromise space, right? Like that sort of in-between zone when like the battle lines aren't real sharp, um, like, it's simpler to know what to do when you're given zero options, right? Like, to follow means to lose your life right then and there. You don't even have to think about it. 
Not that it makes it easier necessarily, but it does make it simpler in a way. Uh, we know this to be true because, you know, we've often heard the church thrives under periods of intense persecution. Uh, the second century church, fa uh, church father, Tertullian, who I know we all read on an everyday basis, but you may have heard his quote, very famous, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? And we've seen this happen globally over and over again. Uh, and on the flip side, research shows us that those who identify as Christians have actually gone down by like 12 percentage points, even in just the last decade. And it's not because anyone's threatening our right to worship. Because somewhat ironically, it's easier to sort of hold on to our identity and our true calling and your true allegiance when your life is on the line versus your comfort. It's weird, right? And if we believe that the enemy is always just kind of this out there, sort of like it's always going to be this obvious, scary, we'll know it when we see it type phenomenon, we're going to be at risk at missing that insidious reach of empire taking root in us very slowly, very imperceptibly, without us even being aware of it. We're going to wake up one day and be like, how do we get where we got? Even though we're the ones that let it happen to us. We invited it in. Um, I was thinking about empire and how it sort of functions a little bit like vampires and not because they rhyme. But, and I have to confess, all of my knowledge of vampires pretty much comes from a, an assigned reading in ninth grade of Bram Stoker's Dracula and a more recent reading of Stephen King's Salem's Lot. So if you are a vampire expert, just give me some grace. I may get this wrong. But I think the way the vampires work is uh, you have, they have to be invited in by you in order for them to have any power over you, right? Uh, no one would willingly invite a vampire in if you knew what nefarious plans they had for you, right? Uh, but they do this by their seductive and hypnotic powers, right? They tempt you. And they can be irresistible. And so this, was the, this is the situation for the church in Pergamum. When directly confronted with persecution, they did great. Like we said, Antipas lost his life, and they were like, you held fast. That was awesome. But what they weren't so great at doing was holding fast to the faith, ironically, when things were going well, when they weren't, when they didn't have, like, a sword to their throat. It's when the allure of living the life, like, their lives and ease and luxury was just too good to resist. And so... To understand this, you kind of have to paint a picture of Pergamum a little bit. So it was an extremely famous and prosperous city. It was known as sort of like the center of the imperial cult for its province. Um, and so it enjoyed that kind of like accompanying esteem um, and renown that goes along with that. It's a little bit like Salt Lake City in the sense that it's got that temple, right? Everybody knows that's what it's associated with. Um, it was famous for having a... Uh, 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 thrown to Zeus, an uh, altar to Zeus on the town citadel. So, like, you came into the city, it was the first thing you saw. Uh, it was known for its uh, temples, the worship of the Greek god Asclepius. And so, people came all over the Roman Empire to get healed at these famous spas. Um, and it had the like the the honor of being one of the first cities to have uh, in its prov in its area to have uh, to build a temple to a Roman emperor, to Augustus. And so, it had massive theaters, forums, temples, a stadium, all the works. So 
So it was literally like a capital of pleasure, wealth, health, power, all the things. And it's like such a shame that we can't find parallels to that, you know, today in our country where we live, because I know we as a culture just can't relate at all to worshiping wealth, health, pleasure, power, none of those things. Wait, we absolutely do, right? Like all we have to do is just like drive down the interstate or open up Instagram for like 10 seconds, right? And we know what we're being beckoned every second of the day to worship, right? So all of these things, along with their corresponding deities, it permeated the culture in the city. It was part of the air they breathed. It was the part of, it's part of the air we breathe, right? All these rival kingdoms. And so this is why John, uh, John refers to their town as Satan's throne. He's like, you know, it's very dramatic. You may have heard that. He's like, I know where you live. Satan's throne. It's like, whoa. It's like, calm down, John. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to pull the veil back right? Because they're so immersed in it, they can't see it for themselves. Um, it reminds me of that line from that paragon of classic 90s cinema, uh, The Matrix, again, dating, dating me. But back in my day, no youth group was complete without a good Matrix reference. I don't know why, but we were always taught about worldview, and for some reason, Matrix was trotted out every time to explain what worldview meant. But it's been 22 years since The Matrix came out, so I think I'm safe to quote it again. Um, and if you haven't seen it, that's on you. Go take care of that. Uh, but in the scene where Morpheus explains to Neo what The Matrix is and how it functions, he says, the Matrix is everywhere. It's all around us, even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It's the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. That's empire. It's a great definition of empire right there. It permeated all of life. And so in order for that empire or any other empire to work for that matter, it had to capture the hearts and the minds and the imaginations of the people, right? And so it literally had to be everywhere. It was on the money it was printed on their coins that they used that they, to buy anything, the jobs that they worked, the meals that they ate, so the, the statues that they passed on the streets on their way to work. It's, it was inescapable. Just as today, it's inescapable. And so if you were a Christian living in this society, there was literally nowhere you could go that didn't remind you that your home was devoted to every other deity but Jesus, who happened to be the antithesis of Roman power, right? I mean, Jesus was no, not just executed by the state, by the Roman state for standing up to empire, but the kingdom that he came to declare was literally the epitome of non-violent, non-oppressive rule, right? It's like we sing at Christmas time, his law is love and his gospel was peace, right? Rome may have called the time when they were at their height of power the Pax Romana or the, the peace of Rome, but that was a lie. It was anything but peaceful. It was built on the principles of violence and domination and slavery. And yet, like, look at the pretty architecture. <laughs> look at the beautiful system of government. Look at the democracy. It works so well, right? It has its perks. It was irresistibly nice, right? So resisting this kingdom was no easy thing if you lived there. 
uh, author and scholar James K.A. Smith, uh, someone John, Johnny and I really like, uh, he talks about this a lot in a book he has on the spiritual power of habit, uh, which is called You Are What You Love, and I, I'm very much commend it to you. It's a good, good book. Um, but he argues in that book that we all worship something, right? We're always being formed, um, and often not by what we think, right? So most of us drift through life thinking that the culture around us is having like a neutral or at least benign effect on us, when in fact it's much more formative than we realize. And it often takes looking through the world through that sort of apocalyptic lens in order to see what's really going on. So Rome may look like the paragon of human achievement. It may look like a gift to human civilization. Do you peel, peel it back? It's a monster, right? And we may think because we've chosen in our brains that, like, I'm a Christ follower. That's what I get formed by, right? In reality, we're much more getting formed by the culture around us, as evidenced by how we spend our time and our money, the things that, if we're really honest, what we're really worshiping, right? Because you can't think your way into discipline or into dis discipleship. Just like you can't think your way into uh, getting healthier or uh, getting into shape, it takes uh, intention and it takes effort. Uh, one of my friends, one of my closest friends, goes round and round with us with her husband. Um, he's, he's bought a rowing machine. He doesn't row. He's had CrossFit memberships. He doesn't go. And she's like, you just need to sell the rower. You just need to cancel the membership. Like, you need to just be honest with yourself. You're not, you're not a workout person. That's not you. And he's like, no, 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 no. Like, it's really important to me. Exercise is so important. It's a priority for me. And she's like, no, it's not. <laughs> like, if it was, you would do it, right? So it's like, if you don't set your alarm at 5 a.m., like, you're not going to get up and work out. Same with discipleship. Like, if you're not intentional with it, not intentional about how you're being formed, you will be formed by the culture around you. It's just too seductive. It's too irresistible. Um... But what was Pergamum, the church that we're talking about today, what were they specifically doing that was so horrible? Because John seems very much up in arms about it. How were they getting seduced by empire? Uh, well, as we read, some, some in the church were being led astray by leaders within the church who were encouraging them in certain practices that John slash Jesus believed did not have a neutral effect on them. They were not insignificant. They were showing accommodation to the empire. And he specifically calls out, you may recall, he specifically calls out Balaam, someone named Balaam, as a false teacher, as a false prophet. Now, that's almost certainly not what the name of that person was. What that was was just code for the readers at the time. They would have known, they would have heard Balaam, and they would have heard, oh, that guy in the Old Testament, who was code for wicked Gentile prophet who leads the people of God astray in order for them to fall under the judgment of God. I know that's a lot, but that is what they heard because you all the way back to the book of Numbers, uh, the people, uh, this guy Balaam is called on by a foreign king mentioned in this letter, King Balak, uh, to curse the people of Israel. And he's unable to do it because he's actually a legit prophet. And they were under the, Yahweh's blessing. And he's unable to curse them. And so he has to resort to a more subtle infiltration, temptation, Right? You might say he was unable to directly persecute them, and so they had to choose it for themselves. And it took the form of him sending these foreign women 
into these, uh, to these Israelite men, seducing them, getting them to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and then worshiping these foreign gods. And so that's why he references this, because that's what is an issue here, is they're eating meat sacrificed to idols. And he also mentions sexual immorality. Now, the sexual immorality mentioned here, probably like as it is often referenced in the Old Testament, is not talking about literal, although that, I'm sure that was occurring. Uh, but it was referring to more like spiritual apostasy, right? Oftentimes in the Old Testament, that's how it's sort of characterized, running after foreign gods. Now, that may seem like a weird way of putting it, like why are you combining these two things? But that was because dining was such a huge deal in the ancient world. So it wasn't for them just sort of an intake of calories. They were not, you know, they were not eat-to-live type people. Um, it meant communion, right? And so that, this is why Paul makes such a big deal out of it. If you remember in 1 Corinthians, he chastises the people. He's like, you're not eating in an equitable fashion. You're, you're being picky with who you're eating with. And that's because it meant something. Who you ate with mattered. Where you ate mattered. What you ate mattered. It was considered sort of an intimate experience. Uh, experience. And so this is why John is able to refer, refer to eating meat sacrificed to idols as sexual immorality, as sort of spiritual adultery. Now, almost all meat eaten back then, was sold in the marketplace, had been sacrificed to a god. That's just how it worked, right? It permeated the culture, remember? So what are they talking about here? Well, we don't know for sure. No one does. But it was probably, you know, something like a pagan festival or dining at a temple or perhaps some kind of banquet that was associated with whatever, like, profession they were in. These were really frequent um, so they were probably engaging in some of those sorts of activities. And the expectation was that all citizens would participate in this, right? Now, these weren't necessarily situations in which they would lose their life if they were like, I'm out, I can't go, sorry, I'm a Christian. But it would have meant serious professional um, and social consequences. This wasn't like sort of like a, oh, you didn't drink at the office Christmas party, and so now everybody kind of knows you're, you're a square or something like that. It would have meant major ostracism um, and a prevention of upward mobility. And so why is John so hung up on this? Like if Paul, as you recall, may recall, said, hey, it's fine, to eat, it's fine to eat meat sacrificed to idols as long as it doesn't weaken your, uh, it doesn't assembling block to your weaker brother, it's fine. And that's not the case here. John's like, nope, can't do it. So why, why is this such a big deal? Well, I think it's important for two reasons that I also happen to think matter today. So first one, when Balaam or the Nicolaitans, if you remember they were referenced to in this letter, who knows who they were, we don't know, but they were doing the same thing as, the, as Balaam, leading people astray. When they said it was okay to eat this meat, it wasn't because they were promoting belief in these gods. What they were doing was they were reassuring the people that it was okay to do it because they knew that there was going to be repercussions for them socially and financially. And so they were telling people, like, don't worry, it's cool. Jesus gets it. And John says, no, it does matter. It matters a great deal. Because what Jesus was concerned about was how this practice was forming them, Right? By eating it, they were telling themselves something about themselves. They were saying, my job security, my social standing, my ease of life in this culture, 
Those are what's actually claiming lordship in my life, not Jesus. John had committed them earlier to holding fast to the name of Jesus, and that's what they're failing to do here. Because what holding fast to the name of Jesus meant was not that they were just sort of mentally, uh, you know, they had faith in Christ, like mentally assenting to Christ in their brains. But what that meant was holding fast to the same faith that Jesus himself bore witness to when he died on the cross, which was Jesus is Lord, right? So they were forgetting their true identity. They were forgetting who they really were. Were they first and foremost citizens of Rome? Or were they first and foremost citizens of God's kingdom? And so the second reason I think that John makes a big deal here, especially in light of Paul's sort of different read on this behavior, is that resistance to empire and faithful witness to Jesus is going to look different in every context and in every generation. And this is kind of bad news, right? Like, wah, wah. Like, I wish the Bible was, you know, an instruction manual where you could just flip to the index and be like, how do I serve God faithfully in 2021 in this political climate that we find ourselves in? Like, you can't do that. Sorry. People have tried. People have tried to make that happen, find biblical principles for everything, but that's misguided. We can't do it. Uh, And so we shouldn't be surprised that when Paul is addressing a certain people with a certain set of problems at a certain time in their context, it's going to look different from when John is talking to another set of people in their time, in their context, right? Faithful resistance is going to look different. In fact, Daniel, the other apocalyptic book that we have in our Bible, his looks vastly different. As a Jew living in exile, he actually works from within the system. If you recall, he gets put in a huge position of power, and so he works from within the system itself. So we can't extract one model that's going to like universally work, right? So this is where it gets hard. I'm sorry. But the solution is that we have to cultivate a posture of asking ourselves what is our, and our, ourselves in our faith community, uh, kind of what Gorman says, what is our peculiar unholy spirit? Like where are we being seduced by empire? And listening for the spirit to show us how to be more faithful people of God. So the stern warning that's given to Pergamum can sort of be remixed for us today because like Pergamum, the church is not under intense persecution right now. And I know this because we're sitting here in this room, right? Um, I know that there are some who want us to think that we are, that Christians' rights are under massive threat, but I think that's just driven by fear. I don't think it's true. And I don't say that to argue, but I I think it's because to think and act that way is to sort of divert attention from the real problem, right? It's not the empire. It's us collaborating with the empire. We may think in our minds that we're on the side of the lamb, but do our lives really reflect that? Um, Author and pastor who I really, really love, um, have gotten so much out of his work, uh, Rich Velotis, uh, he, qu- he recently quoted, um, he was talking about Revelation in a passage we're going to get to in a few weeks, but he says, Jesus standing at the door and knocking is not just a gracious image of God's patient and persistent love, which it is, of course, but it's also a sobering warning that we can lock the door, thinking that Jesus is inside with us, but in truth he's not. 
And so as we go in our week, Missio, it may be helpful to sort of take an internal audit. So whose lordship are we proclaiming? Not on paper, but day in and day out with the way we live our lives. Are we awake to the ways that we're being formed by empire? Because if we're honest, we're never directly tempted, like offered a platter of good ideas and bad ideas that we then just, you know, consciously accept or reject, right? It's never that straightforward. It's much more subtle. And so we have to constantly ask ourselves, how are rival empires forming us? Is it our obsession with looking a certain way, maybe? Is it our addiction to work or to health? What takes priority in the hours of our days? A good first step in uncovering this is to sort of look at the places where you make excuses. Where's your inner Balaam saying, it's okay, don't worry about it. Jesus understands, you're good. So ask yourselves, what kingdom, what kingdom are you living out of? Empire operates out of a scarcity model. There's never enough. It's a zero-sum game. So grab what's yours because someone else will take it if you don't. And you need to win this argument. You need to be in control. That's what empire says. Or do we live by the kingdom of God, which operates out of an abundance model? It says go last because there's always room at the table. Would you pray with me as we enter into communion? Jesus, as we enter into this time of communion where we think about your death and your resurrection, let this be a practice that forms us. Let it remind us of who we are. Remind us that this is our proclamation. That every time we come together and we eat this meal, we actually engage in an anti-imperialist act, which first said no to Egypt, and then said no to Rome, and we say no now to every other evil empire that claims it has a right to rule the world. We declare that you alone, Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, you sit alone on the throne. Lead us into the way of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Missio, the table is set here in the middle. Uh, the gluten-free options are on the far side. Come when you're ready. <laughs>